With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This week's episode of Screen Talk is sponsored by Cinema Made in Italy and Magnolia Pictures presenting Dogman, a sly crime thriller from the award-winning director of Gamora. Winner of the Best Actor Award from the 2008 Cannes Film Festival and the European Film Awards, Dogman tells the story of vengeance where only the strong will survive. Winner of nine Italian Oscars, including Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, and Actor, The Guardian calls Dogman a movie with an incomparable bite and strength, now playing in New York and Los Angeles. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson and our editor-at-large, who is back from Cinecon, back into the swing of things, as it were, in between the uh, anxiety of the future of distribution and the anxiety of anticipating the Cannes Film Festival. We have a nice opportunity to look at a couple of things that are going on in the world right now. But since we already talked a bit about CinemaCon and Netflix being this kind of interesting elephant in the room or sometimes the object of derision, we have a very ironic update on Netflix, which is this story you were reporting on recently involving what seems to be an acquisition of the Egyptian theater in Los Angeles. So all of a sudden, Netflix may be acquiring this major historic theater, what does that mean in terms of the theatrical ambitions of this streaming platform that people say doesn't care about movie theaters? Well, you know that they turned down the chance to pick up um, the landmark theater chain, the indie chain, which is booking most of their movies and will continue to do so um, because they didn't want to be an exhibition. This is much more about a philanthropic good move help refurbish the theater. They're spending or committing to spend tens of millions on this. And the theater is great on Hollywood Boulevard. It's been run by the American Cinematheque, which picked it up for a dollar from the city and refurbished it for at the cost of about $12 million. Um, and Barbara Smith was the outgoing head of it. And now they're trying to find a new leader and they're going to be taking over the weekend programming of the theater, which kind of throws out of consideration the idea of booking for weeks at a time. So the Netflix, assuming all of this goes through, which it will, um, Netflix is going to be booking um, during the week. And they're going to be using it for awards, for events, for premieres. It's They have a year-round thing going with TV and with Oscars. And you can imagine the Irishman premiere taking place there, but the booking of the Irishman would be somewhere else. But what I'm trying to figure out in all this is, does this mean Netflix plays nice with other distributors? Like, can can a movie from a studio that tends to grumble about Netflix play something at the Egyptian, or are we going to see... It's not a first-run house. It's a repertory, classic, special event. They'll still do it. 
that's that that'll be really fascinating to see if because i mean the, these people do have to play together it's mostly indies that are playing at the egyptian i wouldn't say that a big studio would throw a premiere there most of the time anyway i'm also curious to see in this case how um how netflix kind of tries to win over the community that thinks it doesn't care about theaters through this through this because this because because the egyptian is one thing but booking the Irishmen in more traditional art houses is something else altogether. And while booking the Egyptian may help check that box on, in terms of whatever the Academy requires for its theatrical release. I don't think it will because they can't play there on the weekends. So they need to play it for a full week. So the question is, 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 is booking the Egyptian, if it's a philanthropic effort, they could take it over for one week. I mean, if that's what they have to do. But I'm assuming that they're going to... All right, let's just put it this way. They're opening a door. They're going to play around with it. And if they do book it for a week, they could. But at the moment, that's not how they're setting it up. So this, uh, The other thing that, that you raised here is, is Landmark itself. I think it's interesting to compare what Netflix is doing and sort of categorizing it as philanthropic effort with what... Charles Cohen has done acquiring Landmark. I mean, there, there's another... And he's, and he's taking over the quad. I mean, the Landmark is taking over the Which quad. Which is no surprise because Cohen bought the quad a couple years ago. And did a nice job of refurbishing it. It's quite a pretty little theater now. It used to be a dump. Sort of a fancy spot for, for repertory screening, and it was pretty well curated for, for a while. But, you know, this was not surprising that he would then acquire a major specialty distributor outlet and turn one of his existing feeders into one of those outlets, especially when you consider that there isn't really a theater quite like that in that immediate neighborhood, which is kind of Perfect. close to Union Square. The other one is over on 57th Street, right? Right. So, I, But I think it's an interesting move because uh, we lost a, uh, a major art house in New York not too long ago, the Lincoln Plaza Cinemas. Uh, right off from uh, Lincoln Center, and on some level, the 57th Street absorbed a bit of that, but it's pretty far west, and Lincoln Center's programming is very different. So now you have an actual downtown presence for Landmark. The sunshine's been gone for a bit, and it's supposedly becoming condominiums, although it looked like a homeless shelter when I walked by it the other day. Literally, there were homeless people sleeping oh, under awful. under these spots for where the posters used to be. I mean, it really, oh, it's, it, it's like sad. a visual representation of the challenges facing art houses today. But the rumor for the, for the Irishman is that they're actually talking to the IFC center for the opening of that movie in new york so that's a sign that they're going indie with that and roma obviously played at the ifc center for weeks and weeks was selling out even when it was on netflix the difference here obviously is that we don't know if the irishman is the kind of movie that will necessarily be met with that kind of enthusiasm although one assumes that at least for at the beginning that will be the case and we didn't really get into this before but Will Netflix report box office? Because that seems like... Somebody told me... I was talking to a distributor who was saying, you know, if you're going to change up rules for, say, Academy qualifying runs, maybe you should include a rule about just requiring distributors or films to report their grosses. Well, this is one of the great um, 
sources of contention and unhappiness on the part of the exhibitors that they feel that Netflix should play by the same rules that the other studios do. They should just book their films, report their box office, let their films run their course if they're going to put them in theaters and, uh, and do what they need to do with just those few movies a year that qualify for that kind of release. And uh, I can see that point of view. I mean, on some level, simply making the effort to play by the same rules that the rest of this business is doing would be a gesture of good faith. If you're going to buy this revered movie theater and show some interest in the community and so forth, on some level you also have to meet people halfway in terms of the metrics they use to, to, to understand how they're doing. And I think that, you know, by, by virtue of not disclosing those things, they're, they're forcing other people to feel like they're, they're losing in a way that is just adding to these bad vibes, you know? It's an interesting question. They don't have to do anything. And I suspect that on April 23rd, when the Academy has its rules meeting, that they are not necessarily going to change the rules, given who's in the Academy on the Board of Governors. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, it, it's, it's also very interesting to think about... Um, you know, the the way in which we've had to figure out how these movies do in theaters. I mean, people have said, with respect to the landmark thing, I mean, is it a good thing to lose what the quad was so it becomes yet another landmark? But no matter how you characterize the takeover of landmark, this is a, this is a theater chain that is still probably doing more good than bad in terms of the of exhibition. Of course they are, and they're good at films. booking. Yeah, they know what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, at least for the time being, there are still some people who have been there a long time, and the movies that they get are going to come from a range of different people. That's kind of why I was asking you about the Egyptian in the sense of whether or not this could be an outlet for other distributors to take advantage of, because at the end of the day, if you're working with other people constructively, they like you more, <laughs> and it couldn't hurt to provide an outlet on that. I think Netflix is aware of that. By the way, Ted Sarandos is on the board of directors of the Cinematheque, and they still have the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. And I think this is going to help them go forward and be in good shape financially. Sounds like Los Angeles could use this theater being good shape anyway, given the, the overall ecosystem for repertory showings and so forth exactly. right now. Which leads into this other story that I was focused on this week, the launch of the Criterion channel, which technically this is sort of the third, some sort of the second and a half iteration of the Criterion channel, because Criterion's first home... Filmstruck! Well, but before that, the digital library was on Hulu, right? So for, that oh, was sort right. of the first time that you had a, a really incredible access to this huge volume of some of the most, the most revered uh, brand of classic film library out there. It was available to Hulu subscribers. I used it all the time. Filmstruck created a more curated approach to it and launched the Criterion channel, which was without a doubt the most exciting thing about Filmstruck. I mean, yes, they had the Warner's library and lots of other you know classic Hollywood stuff, but the Criterion channel was just very nicely presented on there so that you didn't have to just wade through the titles. You had different kinds of categories and people really finding ways to make this category this it was library a branding thing yeah as accessible and and so what, what i 
have learned and, and didn't totally realize before was that when uh, Hulu's uh, licensing of the Criterion Library switched over to Filmstruck, they worked out the deal so that that library overlapped in those two places for a day because their relationship to their viewership, however big or small it was, was such that they didn't want to go for any period of time where that library wasn't available digitally. But when Filmstruck went down, it was the first time in several years that that Criterion library was not in any capacity available online. You could find some titles here and there on other streamers like Canopy or whatever. You could, you could look around, but the, the, the scope of it and there were habits forming around that, and you, and you could notice the void. You could see the way that people were freaking out about losing this thing they really cared about. So the Criterion Channel is really interesting to me because it represents the, what, what a niche streaming platform might look like at this particular stage as we look at Netflix and so on and so forth and how the big players are working, what Disney Plus is going to look like, et cetera, et cetera. This is a thing that is actually run by two or three full-time people at Criterion, and then all the tech stuff is, is Vimeo. So it's, it's, the overhead is really small, but what's really neat about it is that you don't necessarily need to have an incredibly successful subscriber base when you keep it small like that. So I'm sort of fascinated by this thing. You should get an account and play around with it. I look forward. I paid a lot for my Filmstruck account, and it dismays me that I didn't get much out of it. Yeah, well, I mean, but, Filmstruck, but, the idea theoretically was was on the right track, but I think the structure of it was off because they were never, we know, you and I know that we spend a lot of the time talking about things that only certain really committed movie or TV buffs, culture junkies or whatever are going to notice. Sometimes certain things cross over into mainstream awareness, but that is just the reality of this. It was small. So last night, I went to the opening of TCM Classic Movies. It was a welcome party. I think the actual opening night is tonight with When Harry Met Sally. Um, but I talked to some of the people there and learned that now that they're under Warner Brothers, there's all sorts of, they've moved the structure of it around now that Warner Media is the new thing and AT&T has taken over and everything. So they're inside squarely the Warner Brothers universe. And they think that if that had happened earlier, Filmstruck might not have had to end. And that's really sad. I mean, it it's always remained. easy to make that argument after the fact. What what if this would have happened? I mean, how would that have how would that have even But now they're gonna have all sorts of synergies with Warner Archive and, and all the Warner's titles that are coming up for anniversaries and they still have this thing going on with fathom which is 12 to 14 movies a year it's it's all happening only getting the the range of corporate resources that we're sort of lacking but i think the the fallacy in the hypothetical not to sound well, too well they're optimistic that they're going to get them let's put it that way but but the way i would say it is it's not that if this would have happened, Filmstruck would have survived. I think that the, the, the disconnect there is that a, a streaming platform like Filmstruck that's attached to a big corporate entity never should have existed in the first place. What we should have had was a large streaming platform with a section in it that was designated for classic cinema and you could build that audience organically as a part of this larger thing. What they had was a separate department with a, a very committed staff that worked very hard on it, 
but I think that makes it harder to look at kind of the bottom line, which is why I'm, I, I was pointing out this with, this with respect to the Criterion channel, you don't have that. You have like one, maybe two people who are on staff curating this thing, and then the rest is a kind of a deal with an, another platform that's used to handling all this stuff. So I think that's sort of, that's where it seems like things are starting to evolve on this front is whatever this Warner archive is going to look like online is going to be tied in with Warner's broader streaming ambitions and perhaps the, the idea of, of launching something new as opposed to launching something cool well, that's part of it. You know what Warner archive is. It's an on-demand thing where somebody wants a classic title and orders it up and they get it. It's not like a real business. Right. But there, there is an audience for that, and it should it, it, building it into whatever their larger plans are is just much more practical for a company on that size. I think the sad thing is that Filmstruck was growing, and it was small, but it was growing, and they, they all still are very upset about it. Let's put it that way. I don't want to be un, un, unsympathetic to what they went through because it it, it sucks. And I, and I think they, they did learning. work hard. Right. They were learning and they were, they were growing a, a, a fan base. You know, and, and look, the, this, is, this kind of thing takes more time than just right. putting the most popular stuff out there. And it, it, look, and at so it, look at IndieWire. We've learned what we've learned over 20 years. And we've gotten good at what we do. But other people need to learn too. I mean, I really feel like on some level... The, perhaps the most valuable thing about Filmstruck was its failure to live longer because it is going to inform how these sort of ambitions are, are sort of plotted out going forward. In any case, just to come back to the original point, people should subscribe to the Criterion channel and make time to kind of experience it because what I really like about it is that they have curated different features for every day of the week. So if you are somebody who tends to stay home and watch stuff, which is a lot of us, you really can kind of base your plan your free time around watching things on here if the glut of TV isn't overwhelming to you. And to be honest, I mean, what are you watching right now? Barry or Veep or Killing Eve? I mean, there's a handful of TV shows that... The disdain with which you say that is so fascinating. <laughs> as, much as, as much as you might be like, I just want to watch a lighthearted TV show right now, if you channeled 50% of that curiosity into the idea of, of just seeing what this curated platform is offering to you, you might form a more constructive habit and start watching things that are much more interesting than, than all this other contemporary junk that's available to you. And I speak you sound to- like I, you're talking to your NYU class. I, I will be at some point. Students, I, but you know you what? On improve so, your intellectual awareness. But you know what? And on some level, I, 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 I'm also talking to myself because I think we're all guilty of that no, impulse. I love these movies. And I recognize that they're most of the time what would give me real, genuine, deep pleasure. And instead, I do what I have to do for my job. Right. Well, I mean, that's that's everybody, right? And you then and then you get beyond in the the wider tiers of of people who have their their jobs and what they like to do on their downtime and all that kind of stuff. I, I one more point on Criterion Channel that I think is worth pointing out is that you know I'm spoiled living in New York. It's it's one of the great movie going cities in the world. Uh, Paris 
sometimes gives us a run for our money, but not necessarily when you get down to really the caliber of programming that takes place here. So it's a hard sort of experience if you're a cinephile living in a small city that's not close to these places. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about the potential for this programming is they seem to be tapping into a range of different programming taking place at everything from MoMA to Metrograph to create packages on the channel that are based off of them and even employing on a freelance basis some of the curators for those series. So if there's a great rep series at Metrograph that we're all excited about and you see tweets about or whatever, people may actually take that to Criterion Channel and then it becomes national programming. And they're actually working with art houses to get them to curate on the channel. They told me that there's a, an art house in, in Texas that has been running previews for the channel because they have representation on it. And so th there is something really interesting that's going on on this level with, you know, Netflix may represent a threat to the, the theatrical model on a larger scale, but on the level of, of, of art houses and cinephiles and so on and so forth, I think there is something more complementary going on that may point to a different kind of future in which you know all these people who want a certain kind of experience to survive are basically teaming up to figure out what the right balance is between you know streaming versus theatrical and, and how to kind of create metrics for success there because they're different it's not about blockbuster figures it's about just keeping things out there so the people who want them can go see them well clearly they peter becker and company learned a lot from the film struck experience and are applying that to this new iteration peter becker is just fascinating figure he's, you know, he's sort of the caretaker of janice films library which his father co-founded in the 50s and is very committed to protecting this brand. I mean, there's a reason why this library didn't just pop up in Netflix and get subjected to that algorithm because he has a very- He, want, he wanted the brand. I've talked to him about this. So it's, and, and so it'll, it'll be interesting to see the degree to which uh, Criterion Channel will be able to, to kind of help and evolve. So, that, so watch that space. And then in other news- so, Can is coming. Yes. Speaking of the future of cinema in all its complexities, the next time we record... So we're, so we're preparing. We've booked our tickets. Are you going to go to Paris this year? Seems like it. Yeah, going to Paris ahead of Cannes tends to be a valuable way to pick up on a few things in advance and you know, also get over I was that. I was talking to Ryan Werner about that in New York when I was there, and it made me think about wanting to go myself. Paris is always such a fascinating contrast to New York in terms of Cannes because... Most people, most media and industry people I know in New York who go to Cannes, it's sort of like you show up there and, and, and you're kind of, you're in the minority on some level. You don't, it's hard to track buzz from over here. It's hard to figure out, you know, what's worth seeing outside of the kind of the marquee items. But on the French side of things, there are people who are much more plugged into the nuances of the programming process because there are a lot of sales companies there and so on and so forth. So it's, it's really interesting just to be in Paris and talk to people who live there about how they are hearing about the lineup and the different things that are there or not there because it's a very different kind of network of sorts. And I, I always is fascinating to me because we recede into our bubbles. And the reason why I think Cannes is valuable is that it really does take you out of that to look at what cinema is around the world. So we already know some stuff. We know that the Jim Jarmusch movie is opening the festival, The Dead Don't Die. Did you see the trailer for that one? 
Absolutely. I can't wait. So fun. Some people are telling me it looks bad, but they don't know what they're talking about. Because you have to remember, this is Jim Jarmusch. Hope Springs Eternal, as, as you often say, but also it's a Jarmusch film. I mean, there are certain kinds of auteurs who work in a certain way, and you can just feel the rhythms there. It's not that he made a zombie movie, it's that he made a Jim Jarmusch movie that happens to have zombies in it. I mean, the idea of Iggy Pop as a, as a zombie craving coffee is, is so, that's like a Jarmuschian concept that was, it seems like it, it, it's, it's a shock it hasn't happened yet, you know? And I remember when uh, Only Lovers Left Alive went to Cannes, and it was programmed. I love that film. And it was programmed. Remember, late in the festival. Late, very so late. So people thought, "Oh, is that a bad sign or whatever?" Or like Jarmusch doing vampires. It was the best movie for years. Yeah, I mean, I just and the thing is, try to distill that into a trailer that plays it up as a vampire or movie. Patterson, for that matter. Oh, I mean, Patterson, a, a, a poet. Before. Why? Why is it the, that people are wary of a Jarmusch movie about zombies, but a Jarmusch movie about a poet in New Jersey? who drives a bus, a bus driver. Is it, it seems more exciting. Or, I mean, it's... Well, so I saw Adam Driver on Broadway when I was in New York. It was a preview of Burn This with uh, oh, Carrie Russell. They were so sexy. It was so funny. I recommend it. People are just melting when they see the, the image of the two of them together. So I'm included. That's why I went. It sounds like it's, it, it, it doesn't disappoint. They deliver. I really do want to see that. But, anyway, but the, the thing with the drama thing that I think is also interesting in, in, with respect to Cannes is that it's got such an interesting cast. It's not just Adam Driver doing another Jarmusch movie. It's Bill Murray and, like I said, Iggy Pop and uh, Selena Gomez and, and all these people who just... It just seems like a really interesting ensemble piece. I mean, you watch that trailer and that's kind of what it's drilling into your brain. But also, this is something a lot of people may not have picked up on, the film is in competition. So we actually already know we have confirmation of one film that's in competition at Cannes. And that's often not the case for the opening night film. I and know. Sometimes people think it's a curse, you know, and they just put it in there because they want stars. And that could be the case. But another thing that occurs to me is Moonrise... Well, it delivers. That. Well, Moonrise Kingdom opened the festival and was also in competition. That was a focus film. Uh, this is a focus film. And the idea for, for, from a studio POV of being opening night film, I think is actually very exciting because you have this kind of goofy film that's also auteur. It's great marketing. Think about playing that movie in the middle of the festival. Bill Murray and lots of, on the red carpet. Yeah, and Tilda. I mean, and, and the idea that playing that in the middle of the festival when you'll have, say, uh, you know, higher profile movies of other sorts and, and the Palme d'Or race is on and all kinds of other things happening. It could get, there could be, all kinds of ways in which this lineup surprises us because it is never finalized until the very last minute, which is why it's such a chaotic thing to cover because you really don't know what you're talking about until things are announced and then they may even add stuff later, which was certainly the case last year. So the next time we talk next week, I'll be bleary-eyed from getting up bright and early to, to follow the press conference and I can't wait. Talk to you soon, Ann. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.